One of my favorite, 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 favorite Christmas songs right there. Uh, It doesn't get any more appropriate also for the text that we're going to study this morning than that song, Fall on Your Knees. Uh, You know, I love to shop, and uh, I was talking a little bit about that last week, trying to find the right gift for the right, right person. But it's bigger than that. I love this whole season where not just Christianity, but all the whole world right now, the whole world right now is caught up in Christmas. Believers and unbelievers. For a moment, every year, suddenly everybody understands there's something big to sell. Whether they believe or not, the whole world is exchanging gifts right now uh, to celebrate, whether they understand it or not, what God gave to us as human beings. Even triggers, triggers something in us that we want to give to others. We give even, to, obviously, to the people we know, but sometimes we give them to people we don't know. Uh, this is a great season of charity where needy families and, and, and orphans and widows are getting special gifts from ministries all over the world are involved in something like this. Even for us here, uh, I want you to be thinking. Let me kind of throw out a challenge question to you just to get started this morning. What causes do you champion financially? Just something I want you to think about for a minute. This one. What causes do you champion financially? I know most of you champion Starbucks financially and Target and, and I know Kroger. I, I got that. Uh, Amazon. Uh, but when, when I'm saying giving you know, to charity, giving just because you don't get anything back, just giving in the name of Jesus to help others, what causes do you champion financially? I hope that you're... Your church is that number one on that list, that you support the kingdom of God and the mission of Christ by championing the cause of Christ. Our Global Effects 5K was a big success, happened just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this week here in the office we'll be sending out now thousands and thousands of dollars to our partners, Caleb and Burma and Komuni and Indian. Koshilning and Nepal or whoever are the recipients on that list. I don't know who they all are. Erica's working it well right now. Some are going to Mexico to do some pioneer work in humanitarian efforts that we've never done before. But this week, thousands will go out to care for orphans uh, and widows and to, and to help people in the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you this morning to make the cause of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make the cause of the kingdom of God advancing the number one cause that you champion. Now, if you're truly a follower of Christ and you understand what's coming in your future, I'm not trying to say this a way to guilt you or threaten you, but I personally cannot imagine standing before the throne of God to give account of myself as the scripture says I will, and God saying to me, you championed this cause wonderfully but not my cause. I can't imagine that day of accounting unless I'm faithful to champion the cause of Christ. Paul told us, he said, I want you to remember the words of our Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that's what's got us all caught up in the season right now. We're remembering the birth of Christ. We're remembering the words of our Lord that we are a blessed people if we are givers 
and we're not concerned on the receiving side. You will receive. If you love people and give, the Bible's made many promises. Cast your bread upon the water. After many days, it'll return unto you. If you give, it shall be given to you, poured into you, running over shall people get. You're going to get if you give. That's not even the issue. The issue is, I hope you're discovering or maybe rediscovering the joy of giving in the Christmas season. If nothing else, this time of year puts us back to a place where we can rediscover, reconnect with the joy of giving. Now, uh, because I'm a shopping professional, I can tell you it can be a challenge to shop for people that you don't know. That is the number one challenge on the shopping uh, uh, arena, to shop for people you don't know anything about. The easiest person, conversely, in my life to shop for would be Susan. Because there's no one in my life with whom I have a close or personal relationship. I mean, I know every size. Okay? Uh, I know what her tastes are. I know what her like. I just saw some blank looks. Men, if you don't know her sizes, you better get you an index card and write them down. Go through her closet and put that in your wallet or take a picture with your phone or something. Make yourself a personal note. Uh, Win some points, okay? I know her taste. I know her desires. I'm so familiar with her needs and what's on her wish list that it's a joy. It's not a labor. It's just a, it's a joy to shop for her because I can just go into a store. Let me adjust my wire here a minute. I can go into a store and just, yeah, she'd like that. No, she'd hate that. No, she'd like that. Sales lady comes out and says, this is very popular. I'm like, ah, my wife would hate that. No, I can't do that. And so I know her so well that shopping for her is really easy and it's a joy. And she's the beneficiary of my generous giving because she loves me. And because she's committed to me in a relationship, then she is the beneficiary of my generous giving. And, and conversely, again, uh, I am the beneficiary of her generous giving. Why? Because I've committed to her. We're in this together all the way. And it's, uh, sometimes we would use these words, it's not just that we have each other's back. We do have each other's back. But it's much more than that. We have each other's hearts. And because we have each other's hearts, giving comes naturally to us. It's something that's a delight and not a labor for each other. Now, let me give you the challenges here. It's unrealistic for any of us to have an expectation that we're going to get the perfect gift from someone uh, if we keep other people at arm's length. In other words, if you live your life keeping people out there on the periphery, don't ever think that it's an unrealistic expectation to think somebody's going to give me the perfect gift this year. No, they're not, because nobody knows you that well. Nobody can get in. And if you've got the walls up in your life and you're reluctant to make commitments to other people, then if there's no relationships where people can get in there to where you really are in your heart, how will they ever know you? And how will they ever have your heart? And how can they even give you the the perfect gift. So let me say it in a way that we can remember it this week. If you want someone's gifts, then you need to have someone's heart. If you want someone's gifts, now who doesn't want gifts, okay? Let's be honest. (laughs) Take them all back. He doesn't want any, okay? If you don't want anyone's gifts, then you can just live your life with walls up and you don't need relationships. And, but it's a lonely, miserable life, I'll tell you that. 
And if you want people's gifts and generosity flowing into your life, then you have to have someone else's heart. Does that make sense? So let me flip it spiritually now for you. Do you have God's heart? Do you have God's heart? You say, I want all these blessings from God. Great. Do you have his heart? Do you have his heart for others and for people and for discipleship and for the mission of Christ? And, and do you have God's heart? Because if you have God's heart, like David did, then those blessings just flow right into your life because that relationship is, is there. Committing to relationships is what opens the doors to all of the blessings that we really want in our lives. And when it comes down to giving, giving is really not a dollars and cents and budgetary issue. We all know that. Giving is really a heart matter. And, and just we will not be satisfied until we can just find the perfect gift to give. So just by way of a moment of introduction here, let's talk about what makes the perfect gift. I mean, what makes the, you get, I want to get the perfect gift. Okay, great. How, how would you judge that? What constitutes a gift being the perfect gift? I have three things I think you should consider about this. First of all, if it's going to be the perfect gift, it has to be personal. In other words, a, 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 the perfect gift is personal. It's purchased with a person, a someone, a someone in mind. I see people sometimes when I'm out shopping with their cart and they're just like one or two of these and one or two of those and six or seven of these and yeah, I need nine of these. And they're just mindlessly throwing things in a cart, you know, just like this. And I'm like, okay, that's not the perfect gift because I know that just by the way they're picking it. It's not chosen with someone in mind. It's not personal. See, here's the thing. It's impossible to be personal if you're not relational. How can you pick a personal gift if you don't, again, know a person through the means of a committed relationship? Whether well, friendship, co-worker, uh, small group, it doesn't matter. There has to be some connected relationship there. Relationships become the means to bless people or for you to be blessed. It's the means by which we know people. It's the means by which we capture their heart and they capture our heart. So the... It's got to be personal. Secondly, the gift has to be meaningful. Now, how do you judge meaningful? Well, a gift is meaningful when it meets a need. That would be a meaningful gift. If there's something I really needed and someone gave that, that would be meaningful. That would mean something to me, that they understood my need and they gave to the very need that I have. And now that need is alleviated or met in my, in my life. What's meaningful is if it satisfies a desire. I've always wanted this. And so if somebody gets me that thing I've always wanted or that thing that I'm yearning for, well, then that's something that's meaningful to me because they understood my desire. Uh, meaningful could be it benefits me with a better quality of life. That someone sees me trying to do something with an inferior tool or an inferior appliance or an inferior car or an inferior anything and they say man I'm going to upgrade this guy I'm going to do something and help them work better and more efficiently get them something that they they need that will give them a better quality of life that would be meaningful what would be meaningful is if it's of great value I mean if somebody gives you something you say oh my goodness I've priced these before these are not cheap 
this is something lavishly given. This is of great value. That would be meaningful to you also. Uh, Let me take it a different direction. Meaningful would be if it means something special to the giver. In other words, if someone said to you, this was my mother's ring. It means a lot to me. I'm giving it to you. This was a, something from my family that they gave to me. It's an ornament we hung on our tree every year. I'm giving it to you to put on your tree. This pocket knife belonged to my grandfather and my father, and I'm going to give it to you, son. That would mean something to me, not because I said, oh, I want this great old pocket knife that's a million years old, but it would be meaningful because it meant something to the person who gave it to me. Does that make sense? All right, you're getting it now. So the perfect gift is personal, it's meaningful, and thirdly, it's sacrificially given. It's sacrificial. In other words, when the gift is given, I realize it was very costly, and they must have sacrificed to provide that, but it doesn't have to be costly. Listen to what I'm saying. Sacrificial could mean it was given with great effort. Um, some. So sometimes in our family, we'll say, hey, I want you to give me something handmade. Does that make sense? Handmade. Whether that's uh, mom making a quilt or me making something out in the wood shop or, or, or someone of the family members making something and giving it to somebody. Do you know, handmade stuff's a lot harder to come by. It requires effort and time and planning and thinking and labor and, and it. You know, I can run into Target in five minutes, get you a gift. But if you say, I would like you to make me something, that's going to take me an hours in the shop to make for you that same thing that I could probably purchase just as cheap over here at Hobby Lobby. But this one would be made with my own hands. And so it would be personal and it would be meaningful and it would be sacrificial because I took the time to make it for you. Does that make sense? So sacrificial doesn't have to mean uh, uh, crazy expensive. It could mean that it's something you had to search for. Something maybe that's an item that's in high demand, and you've been to nine stores and you can't find it, but you're still searching if you have to drive to Oklahoma City. And so with great effort, that's sacrificial. You found this hard-to-find item for the person on your list, and you got your hand on it, and you're going to give it, and when they get it, they're going to say, where in the world did you find this? I've been looking everywhere for these. And you're going to say, well, it wasn't easy. Trust me. I had to drive to Waco to find this because it was sold out in the Metroplex. And and they're going to say, I can't believe that you would do that. For Sacrificial doesn't have to be inexpensive. It could mean with great effort. Let me give you one more twist to sacrificial. Sacrificial could mean purchased with humility. Sometimes all of us will buy a gift that requires us to wade through masses of people, have our eyes scratched out by some other person, uh, be accosted in the parking lot, door ding, run over with a cart, stand in line outside of Kate Spade for an hour and a cold trying to get in the store. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes you're standing in line and you're humiliated. You go through some humility to humble yourself and get something for someone because you have to go through some humbling process uh, I mean Amazon's made our lives great you know because we don't have to be as humiliated out in public 
clawing and chopping and, you know. uh, But when I know someone stood in line to get those tickets for the concert, can you imagine if somebody camped out all night to get concert tickets and bought you two, two while they were in line? And you say, how did you get these? What concert were you wanting to go to, Steve? Paul McCartney. I'm not sleeping overnight on the sidewalk for you. I love you, but I'm not going to do that. Gosh, I can't leave that. I should have never wandered into this trap, huh? But imagine if, imagine if Pastor Aaron slept on the sidewalk to get concert tickets <laughs> for him and Ashley. And they said, listen, we're just going to buy four as long as we're sleeping out here in the tent all night trying to get concert tickets in front of Ticketmaster or wherever. We're going to go ahead and get you two tickets. And you would realize they had to go through some humility, some, some humbling, some inconvenience in order to attain that for you. When you got that, you would say, that's the perfect gift. That would be the perfect gift, by the way, wouldn't it, Steve? Yeah, be the perfect gift. Uh, now, here's what I'm saying to you. This morning, we're going to turn and look at a group of fascinating men who were great gift givers. The wise men are perennial figures in our homes during this season. Uh, you'll see nativity scenes all over town, and there will be the wise men. They'll be on your Christmas cards. They may already be somewhere right now uh, in your homes. But who were the wise men? We are introduced to them for the first time. Well, really not for the first time, but for the first time in the New Testament. We're introduced to them in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, which Pastor David read for you this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. They're traveling west. The words wise men come to us in the English language as a way to describe the Greek word that Matthew wrote when he wrote this 2,000 years ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew wrote the Greek word magos. There came magos from the east. So magos means of magian descent. The plural, the magi, plural. Now, in the English language, we have no word for magian. (laughs) It's not an English word, and that's why. And you wouldn't have a word for it. So when the Bible translators said, we've got to take that word from Medo-Persian into Greek to English, they're like, there's no real way to do it. We have two choices. We either just put magi or we'll put wise men. But because they were English speakers, wise men made more sense to them at the time for people to understand. Because if you don't know who the magi are, reading it on the page wouldn't do anything for you. So they said wise men. But I'm going to tell you who they are because you're sophisticated and educated enough this morning to speak a little Medo-Persian. So go ahead this morning. We'll speak Medo-Persian together. Ancient, ancient language. And we'll call them this morning, plurally, the Magi. The Magi were a priestly tribe of people who came, really predate even the Babylonian uh, Empire, all the way back to Abraham and the Ur of the Chaldees, but they're of Median-type descent. This is uh, modern-day Iran and, and Iraq area. They were very skilled in astronomy and astrology. The science is astronomy... Uh, the superstition is astrology, okay? But in the days of old, there was no distinction between the science uh, and the superstition. Uh, I mean, the science and the horoscope all came together, and it was just one thing. They, they studied the stars. They were skilled uh, at reading the science in the heavens. 
And the Magi had some sort of divination process whereby they could look at the stars and the signs and they could come to conclusions. They could predict things. They knew things by watching the signs. And the Magi were not just crazy stargazers. The Magi were very influential leaders in the ancient uh, empires of the world. The Babylonian Empire, they were there. They're very influential leaders. And from the Babylonian Empire forward to the Medo-Persian Greeks and coming forward, in those ancient eastern empires, the Magi are always the advisors to every emperor and every king. There is a court, and in that court are the wise men, the Magi, and the Magi are whispering into the king's ear, go to war, don't go to war, the signs are right, go to war, no, don't do this, do that. They were the advisors to kings, but they were not just advisors, it's even bigger than that. The Magi were king makers. Now I just want you to think about what I'm saying very carefully right here. The Magi were king makers. They held all the key positions in every government of the East. I'll say it in a way that you understand from the Western world. They were the power behind the power. Now, when you watch politics, you always have a gut feeling that there's somebody behind the scenes pulling the levers, don't you? When things don't make sense that politicians do, you always know in the back of your mind, lobbyists, cash, millions, billions, something's pulling the levers of power behind the scenes that the unwashed masses like you and I don't, don't see happening. Well, in their culture, it was overt. It was not hidden. The Magi were the power behind the power. Uh, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah prophesied, Jeremiah prophesied in the Old Testament that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would invade Judah, which is southern Israel, and he would come in there and take them all captives. That's what Jeremiah predicted. And they would not repent, so sure enough, it happened. The next book in your Bible, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Now, lamentation means to lament, to cry, to mourn, to weep, to wail. The book of Lamentations is a book of crying. Why are they crying? They're crying because in the book of Lamentations, it's lamenting that what Jeremiah prophesied in the previous book has now actually come to pass. And in 597 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar marched his army into Jerusalem and sieged the city and surrounded the, the, the power of Judah. And in 597, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar enslaved, kidnapped all of the young and bright and strong people that he wanted to take back with him as slaves, all the beautiful and bright he packed them up and sent them back and all the strong. He put them to work and marched them back to Babylon. So as the Jews are carried off to Babylon in 597 B.C., the Jews, now just think about being a teenager, and the armies captured you and they've enslaved you and they've taken you back across the desert to, the, to Mesopotamia, the Tigris, Euphrates, and now you're at Babylon. And there in Babylon you come face to face for the first time in your life with these fancy-dressed wise men, the power behind the power, for the first time in your life, you encounter the Magi. Now, here's where we come to the legacy of Daniel. There were some teenage boys, young men, who got caught in that captivity, that invasion. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, 
and Mishael are four of those boys that are named in the Bible. When they get to Babylon, they name them, all of those names mean Jehovah something, God something. But when they got to Babylon, they renamed all four boys our false gods something. So they renamed them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego, which all have to do with the Babylonian gods. And they renamed Daniel Belteshazzar. And so uh, Daniel and these guys come to Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar tested them all. Gave them all an ACT, an SAT, an LSAT, an MCAT, put all the tests in front of them. And when those tests were taken, four boys blew the top out of those tests. I mean, just crushed it. And it was Daniel and his three friends. And that's all recorded in Daniel's chapter number 1 and 2. And so Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest, which were these young Jewish uh, young men, and he enrolled all of them into the Magi U, the University of Magi. It's called the School of the Chaldeans in, the other, in your Bible, but it's Magi University is what it is. And he put them in Magi University, and they're going to be Magi. They're going to teach them the language of the Magi and the laws of the Magi and the science of the Magi and, and the dealings of the Magi. And they're going to teach them how to be the power behind the power and how to serve at the highest ranks of government. Now let me fast forward because I don't have much time this morning, but in Daniel chapter number 2, the king had a dream, a nightmare. When he woke up in the morning, he couldn't remember all the... You ever dream a dream and it wakes you up and you're freaking out? You ever, has that ever happened to anybody in here or is that just me? Okay, I have some crazy dreams sometimes. And when he woke up, he was kind of freaking out. He could remember a little of the dream, and he remembered he was troubled by it. But he couldn't remember all the details of the dream. And so, guess what he does? He calls in the Magi. And he says, you guys are like prognosticators of the future and readers of dreams. Get in here. Calls all the Magi in. I have reason to believe there's many of them. Not like three, but like dozens and dozens of them. And he calls the Magi, maybe hundreds, calls all the Magi in. He says, I want you to tell me my dream, and I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. They said, well, we'll tell you the interpretation, but you've got to tell us the dream. He said, I can't remember the details of the dream, and I'm so upset about it that here's what I'm going to say. You guys are worthless advisors if you can't tell me the dream and the meaning. So you're under a death sentence, and, and in a few days, I'm going to kill all of y'all, your women, your children. I'm going to make your house as a dung heap. The language is violent over there, Daniel, too, unless you can tell me my dream and the interpretation. Now, let me fast forward my story. No one could do it except Daniel. And so Daniel got on his knees and Daniel said, God, we're going to die tomorrow if you don't tell me what this dream is. And so God said, just just relax, Daniel, I got it. I know the faults of men's hearts. Now before I even go with the rest of the sermon, God said, don't worry, Daniel, I know the faults of men's hearts. Does anybody want to get a little nervous right here? It's okay if you want to get a little nervous right here. I know what goes through everyone's mind. I know the dreams you dream. I know the number of hairs on your head. I, I, know what's going, I know what's going on with you. It's both awesome and terrifying, isn't it? It's both awesome when I need protection and help, but it's also terrifying because I know the junk that goes through my head. And God said, I've got it, Daniel. Just, just relax. Tell everybody to relax. I'll give you the dream. And God told him the details of the dream exactly. And God told him the interpretation of the dream as God had intended it. And the bottom line is that when Daniel went in and told the king the answer, Daniel saved the lives of all of the Magi. Because Daniel saved the lives of all the Magi, Daniel was promoted to be the president 
of Babylon, the prime minister and chief of the Magi. So now this Jewish boy who's graduated from Magi U is now the chief of the Magi. So as chief of the Magi, Daniel being a good God follower, Daniel basically looked at the Magi and said, I'm your boss, so now call me your discipleship leader. This is what this looked like. And Daniel taught the Magi everything he knew about God. And he knew a lot about God. And he knew a lot about history. And he was one of the greatest prophets. It's one of the greatest books in your Bible. You need to read the book of Daniel. And Daniel's over there saying, I've I've got a connection with God. And I've got a connection with you. And I'm going to tell you all I know about God and all that God is revealing to me. And God has shown me that not only are you kingmakers. And not only are you the power behind the power. Not only do you have a place in history and in the history books. But God wants you to have a place and a part in the kingdom of God. Not only have you crowned men, but God wants you to know that you're going to crown the king of kings. God, Daniel says, you have a role in history that you haven't imagined. So Daniel taught the Magi why the Jews were in fact in Babylon in the first place. Here's how I come to be the chief of the Magi, because we were disobedient and didn't listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Now God has put us here so that we would be judged by Nebuchadnezzar for being disobedient to God. We wanted idolatry. We didn't want to serve the true God. So God said, you want idolatry? Okay, I'll just let you have a little taste of Babylon and idolatry for a while. You'll be glad to come home to Jehovah God. And so Daniel explained why they were there. And Daniel told the Magi that the Messiah would come, that they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a king that God would send. So when you read at Christmas in 2018, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, behold, there came wise men from the east saying, Where is he? This is how the Magi come to be in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Because Daniel had taught their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and had discipled them. The Magian delegation is traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem because a Christian named Daniel taught them that God would send a king into the world. Daniel was, as we say in discipleship, good at telling God's story. He told God's story so well that these ancient wise men knew that the coming Messiah was not just another king to be crowned, but that in fact this little boy born in Israel would be the king of kings. You say, why did it all happen? It all happened because Daniel was relational and intentional, and he took his faith to work. He didn't leave it at church. It all happened because Daniel didn't see a distinction That Christianity was not like a coat you took off after Sunday and hung in the closet and put back on again next weekend. It's who you were and you take Christ with you wherever you go. He just took his faith to work and he said, since I'm the chief of the Magi and you want to know about mysteries, let me just tell you about me. And he just told them all about God so that 500 years later, when they're looking up at the stars and they see the sign... They would cry out, we see his star. Do you know what the star means? Get the books. Yes, our great-great-grandfather said, when we see the star, pack your junk and move to Bethlehem as quick as you can. That's what was written. 
And so when they saw the star, they went to the scrolls and they saw, get your junk and get to Jerusalem. And so they packed up and they're in Jerusalem for this reason. Now let's fast forward 500 years. The Magi arrive in Jerusalem. Here's what happens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. When they land in Jerusalem, the first thing they start saying to everybody they meet on the street is, Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now that question scared everybody. Where is the king of the Jews? Because they knew they had a king and you weren't allowed to question him. And if you had dared threaten King Herod, he would kill you and your wife and your children and seize all of your stuff. He was a tyrant, a despot. And so when this delegation arrives and they say, we're here for the king. Where's the king? We've seen his star. We've come to worship. They knew they weren't talking about Herod because he's nobody you would want to come and see. He's a terrorist. And so the people were scared. Jerusalem was in turmoil. And we've seen his star. We've come to worship. Now, here's what you need to know. There's always more. There's always more happening than what you can see on the page of your Bible. Let me peel it back and show you why this freaked everybody out. Over here in the east where the Magi have come from, now it's not Babylon or Medo-Persia. Now it's called the Parthian Empire. The Parthian Empire was the superpower of the east. It's over there, Iran, Iraq, Persia, towards India, okay? In this moment, if you look west, here is the Roman Empire, Italy, Europe, North Africa, Greece, Egypt, coming over here to the, to the Middle East. Now, the people in Israel, here, standing here between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire, like a bug about to get squashed. Does that make sense? Here, it would be like today standing between China and the United States on a little piece of dirt, and they're both coming at you with all the power of two mighty nations. It gets even more interesting. You know the Roman Empire ruled the West and the Parthians ruled the East, but those two empires were violent enemies. They fought, and they fought often. And whenever they fought, the battleground was Israel. (laughs) Samaria, Syria. In other words, when the powers of the East and the powers of the West collide, they collide on that little piece of dirt known as modern-day Syria, Israel, Lebanon, right there in in the front yard of the Bible, basically, is where it would always happen. Now, at the time of Christ's birth, the Parthian Empire over here in the East, where the Magi are coming from, it's starting to get weakened. And they had become weakened because they had a wimpy king. They had a wimpy king named Phraates IV that was such a putz, the Magi got together and said, we've got to get rid of this loser. I mean, he's just, he's just a weak and ineffective king. And if we want to retain this power, superpower status, we better get a leader who's not scared. We better get a leader who can put the fear of God into somebody. You know what I'm saying? And this little weakling we've got, Phraates IV, nobody's scared of him. And so the Magi got together and deposed him. So over here in Parthia, they don't have a king, they just got rid of him. Does that make sense? Now you look over here, looking towards Rome, Augustus Caesar. Now you all remember Augustus, in the days of Augustus Caesar, he sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. This is what got Jesus, Joseph, and Mary to Bethlehem. Does that make sense? So 
Augustus is in power over here in Rome. Augustus is, is old. He's hanging by a thread. There's about to be a new king in the West. Does that make sense? There's no king in the East. They're shopping for a king right now. And now all of a sudden, the Persian kingmakers ride into Jerusalem and start saying, a king has been born. We've seen the signs. And when they said, we've seen the signs, everybody just, it was fact, okay? There is a king somewhere because these guys don't jack around. There is a, where is he that is born king of the Jews? When the Magi rode into town, they were looking for a king to crown. They had seen his star in the east, and the Persian kingmakers arrived in full force. Not three guys. The Bible never says that. Not three guys. We don't know. A delegation of the Magi come. They don't ride in on those goofy camels. You just dismiss all of that. Okay? It's not in the Bible. Just on your Christmas card. And if you're sending me that one, I love you. It's all good. I'll send you the same one back. Okay? But when they rode into Jerusalem, they are Persians. You understand what I'm saying? They ride into Jerusalem on Persian stallions blinged out to the max. Okay? The Magi, the kingmakers, did not travel two or three guys lighting a campfire in the desert by themselves. They traveled with a delegation of Delta Force. They, they traveled with an a armed contingent of mounted Persian cavalry wherever they went. They did not go alone, okay? They're not traveling through the desert with treasure all by themselves trying to... Does that make any sense? Be robbed, you'd be robbed before you got out of the city limits. They're traveling with an armed marine force riding around them. And when they roll into Jerusalem with mounted cavalry and tricked out stallions and banners flying and conical hats with ear flaps and regal Persian robes, and they step down off those horses and say, we're here. Everyone knew they were there. I mean, you could hear the thunder of the hoof boots before you even could see them. We're here, and we want to know where the king is. They said, well, Herod's... They said, not that loser. Not him. You see, Herod also had a title. See, the Bible, as I read right here, says when Herod the king heard this, verse 3, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. The Magi wandered all over town saying, where's the king? Herod was so filled with fear, the Bible uses very precise language, His, he trembled, is the Greek, he trembled uh, within himself. He had a title that was given to him by the Roman Emperor Augustus. You know what his title was? King of the Jews. Herod was not even a Jew. He was an Idumean. But Herod had schmoozed and politicked and clawed his way to the top to realize his dream of ruling Israel. And he thought, I'm on the top of the world. But suddenly he found himself like a bug about to be crushed between two massive empires. Herod is now himself old and very near to death. This king is just about to die. That king has just been deposed from his throne 
Can you imagine a world where suddenly God set the stage and there was no leader for China and no leader for Russia and no leader for for Great Britain and no leader for the United States all at once? Can you imagine what that would do to the stock market? Can you imagine what that would do to the evening news? That was the stage that was now set. And when the kingmakers arrived, everybody felt, man, something is going on. Something in history just ain't right. Now, something is something, whatever is going on is not natural, it's supernatural. There's something supernatural happening in our government, in our history right at this moment. Herod felt it so deeply, he immediately assembled the cabinet of advisors. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ would be born. They were leading the country, the chief priests. They were leading the country And yet they had no idea what God was doing in their backyard. The greatest religious event in all of history had happened in their backyard and they did not even know it. They did not even go across town to see if it were true. Let me read for you. He said, I want an official declaration. Matthew chapter 2 verse 5. So they said to him, Herod, you want to know where the little king's going to be born? They knew the prophecy from Micah. So they read the prophet's words to the king. They said, Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you're not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The leaders of Israel knew the prophecy pointing to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's like, Bethlehem's like going from here to Target. I mean, Bethlehem's like going from here to 377. It's a few miles. They knew the prophecy said the Messiah's going to be born right down the street, and yet the religious leaders didn't even go down the street to see if it had really happened. Herod dismissed those people and called in the Magi. Let me read for you, verse 8. He's thinking now, if my guys won't go across town and find the little king, maybe the Magi will find the little king. And if the Magi will find the little king, then I'll just sneak in and kill the little king. So Herod's got a kill squad waiting over here. And he calls the Magi in, and here's what he says. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me back word that I may give me the, text me the address, okay? Because I want to send some Amazon gifts over there to, you know, commemorate the little baby's birth. I'm going to send him a nice little package. He's got the executioners all ready to roll. They're just waiting for an address. The Magi now have started making their way to Bethlehem. And when they heard the king, verse 9, they departed. And behold, uh, they hadn't seen the star now for some time. Behold... The star which they had seen in the east went before. Now, they're not from Israel. They don't have a GPS. They know that road goes to Bethlehem, so they start. But there comes the star now. They saw the star, and it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they didn't even have to search for the baby. God took them right to the house. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now let's start landing the plane, the perfect gift. God had been planning to give us the perfect gift for some time. 
for a long time, since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God had been planning to give to us the perfect gift. And I don't know why it didn't come earlier, and I don't know why it came right now. All I know to tell you is God had set the stage perfectly in history. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He said again in 1 John, chapter number 4, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10 says, in this is love. Here is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. Amen. And he sent his only begotten son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Now, the mission is almost complete for the Magi. They've come to the house. Now, I want you to feel what they felt. Here is a little wooden door in a little poor house. On the other side of this door is what Daniel told us would be there 500 years ago. When we walk through that doorway, on the other side of that door, here is the house where the star is marking the spot. If we knock on that door on the other side, we're the kingmakers. We do this all the time. There's going to be a little male baby or a little male child in that room if we're right. If Daniel's right, there's going to be a little male boy in that room. And when we walk into that room, he's not just going to be a king. He's going to be the king of all kings. Now, let's step into the little house for a minute. Inside the house, there's a young man and a young woman, very young woman, probably a teenage girl who just gave birth to her firstborn. Their lives have changed forever. And I want you to know, nothing changes your life forever like that first baby. You live through that, right? It'll change your life. Nothing will ever be the same again. The awesome sense of responsibility when you carry that baby out of the hospital, you know, and you're so careful and you're triple checking every buckle and I've got to drive 20 miles an hour and use my blinker and be, uh, that baby's back there, I've got to protect that baby. Just imagine how much your life would change if you knew the baby you held in your arms was not just your baby, but that was the Son of Almighty God that He had given to you. And now you were responsible for protecting and caring for Him while He is helpless until He can become a man. Imagine how that would change your life. Now they hear the horse hoofs shaking the ground. You can hear armor and swords and packages and parcels being unloaded and, and you hear commotion outside and Joseph and Mary peek through the blinds and outside in the streets there is an armed delegation. Are these the assassins from Herod? Are they here to kill the baby? Should we go out the back door? Should we find the tunnel? I mean, do, how do we get out of this now? There's armed people standing, there are soldiers in our front yard. Joseph, what does it mean? 
I don't know, Mary, what it means. I don't know what to do. Suddenly there's a knock at the door. Boom, boom, boom. We've got to protect the baby. And as the door is opened and the Magi come into the house, all the fears are dissipated. As the Magi, all as one, fall down on their knees and worship before the little boy that's in their house. They didn't come to hurting. They've come to bow down. These are the kingmakers of Persia. These are the kingmakers of the Parthian Empire. I recognize them now. I've seen these people on TV, and now they're all bowing down in our little living room before our little boy that was born. What does all of this mean? How did they worship? Well, consider two things. Their posture was to bow, right? And their action was to give. Their posture was to bow and their action was to give. This is how they worship. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Bible says that worship is a sacrifice. It's like a gift that we give to God. Do you remember about gifts? It's personal. It's meaningful. It's sacrificial. When you humble yourself and bow down, it means a lot to God. Are are you Western world people here in the pastor this morning? When you humble yourself and bow down, it means a lot to God. It's the difference between just taking something and throwing it into the buggy and sacrificing and humbling yourself and personally concentrating on the Son of God. Their posture was to bow. I don't know what happened to the Western world. There's not a lot of worship going on in the Western world. Now, over in the East right now, in all the mosques to the false god, they're bowing. But to the King of Kings, does no one bow anymore? Our posture and our praise and our participation in the worship are all expressions of our worship. One of the most tangible, touchable ways to worship is what we did a few minutes ago when we give. Now, consider what they gave. Now, most of them, bear with me. Consider what they gave. Awesome gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold has always been the uber expensive gift on planet Earth, hasn't it? It's what scepters are made out of and crowns are made out of and thrones are overlaid with and the Ark of Covenant's overlaid with and what basilicas and cathedrals are gilded with gold is a gift for a king consider what they gave they gave frankincense pure incense frankincense is so fragrant it was used in a special formula in exodus chapter number 30 it says that frankincense is for god nobody else was allowed there was like a perfume in israel no one could use You could only use it in worship. Does that make sense? And they would even take some of the frankincense and put it in the meal offering or sprinkle it in the offering so that the offering was 
you, it's, it's like your sensi or your essential oils or what that's coming up in the room where they're offering the sacrifice to God. It's a gift for God alone. They gave a gift for a king and a gift for a god, and they gave myrrh. Myrrh is a perfume. So these are expensive perfume. By the way, if you don't think perfume's expensive. Every man in here needs to go buy your wife a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 tomorrow and realize what an ounce of Chanel will cost you. Does that make sense? Get ready to drop three figures, okay? It's expensive, and it's in demand. And myrrh, myrrh is what Queen Esther perfumed herself with on her honeymoon night. It's what they sprinkled on the bed and what they put on the processional, the wedding procession. It's also what they mixed sometimes with wine and it would make an anesthetic type narcotic. They offered it to Jesus on the cross even. Myrrh is a gift for a man. It's a scent that's for man. They gave a gift for a king and a gift for a man and a gift for God. Now those of you who understand finances, these are three of the most expensive things that could be given in this day. Okay? They were liquid, they were valuable, they were easily convertible. Mary, if you had a portfolio with these three things in it, you were diversified, okay? It's liquid, it's convertible. In other words, it was so in demand, you could walk into any marketplace anywhere in the world and say, I've got some Chanel, I want to pour a little out, they'd buy it from you on the spot, okay? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now this poor family have left their home. They're going to be chased by Herod to Egypt here in a minute. They have nothing. His business, he can't work his business. He had to leave it behind. They have no money. Here's this poor little family about to run to Egypt in the night and the Magi have just given them. Here's what we want to give to you. A portfolio that will sustain you. It'll put Jesus through college. It'll put braces on his teeth. It'll put shoes on his feet. It'll keep you guys in Chick-fil-A until you guys can care for yourself. They gave, they, now see, we think wrong about this. We think about Christmas presents, you tear open, and ah, it's done. What they got at Christmas was a portfolio that would set Joseph up a new business in Egypt. Does that make sense? Buy them a car to get out of town. Put them in enough funds to, edu- to, to do whatever had to happen so that the mission of God could go forward. And when you look at the gifts they gave, they were personal, they were meaningful, they were sacrificial, and they reflected their relationship towards Christ. We believe you're a king, we believe you're a man, and we believe you're the Son of God. Now that's quite an expression, isn't it? Now, on Monday night, Christmas Eve, we'll come in here and worship together before we go home and be with our families. As you're thinking about getting towards Christmas Eve, I want you to begin to prepare an offering for worship. In these weeks leading up to Christmas, as we're buying the whole world gifts, let's prepare something special in these weeks as we're giving to Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Him? Do you have God's heart? Well, then it's easy to give in a way that reflects your relationship with God. Now, As we go home, let's think about this. What do you think they felt when they went home? They got up off their knees and they said, now take the portfolio and you guys got to go. We got a very, very bad feeling about what's going to happen here tomorrow when the sun comes up. 
and the massacre of the babies happened. You guys know that historically. We got a very bad feeling. We were just up at the palace, and King Herod totally creeped us out, man. You got to pack this baby up. You got to get the king, get the son of God, and you guys got to get out of here. Take the money and go. What do you think the wise... Now, the Bible says the wise men went another way. They didn't go back through Jerusalem. They hightailed it out of Dodge, too. Now, what do you think they felt when they returned home? I think as they rode home, they said, dude, how awesome was that? How awesome was that? Do you realize what just happened, Brother Magi? We just became part of the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wherever the story of Jesus Christ is told for the rest of history, they're going to be talking about us wise men too. Because now we are a part of Christ's story. By the way, if you're his child, you're part of Christ's story forever and ever and ever. And wherever somebody tells their story, they're going to say, yeah, but I'm connected to Letty because she led me to Christ. And Letty's connected to somebody who led her to Christ. And we're all connected to each other. What an opportunity to be a part of the mission of God. And when you worship like they worship, you're going to feel what they felt. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Now let's think about how to unpack that in our own hearts now. You might be thinking this morning, Pastor... I'm not rich. I'm not rich. I don't have all this treasure and I don't have all these assets. But I wish I did. I wish I had treasure that I could give to Christ this morning. While your head's bowed and you're looking into your own heart, listen to what I'm going to say to you. You may not have treasure But you do have knees, don't you? Pastor, I don't have treasure. Yes, but you have knees. You say, if I had treasure, I'd give it. You have knees. Will you bend them? Don't say, God, if I had treasure, I'd give it. You have knees and you don't bend them. What's wrong with us? Do we not really believe he's the king of kings? You said, well, I had treasure. I'd sure give him a little this morning. No, you have knees that remain unbent before the Son of God. Let's don't worry about giving our treasure until we're first willing to humble ourselves and personally connect I realize it's hard to give a meaningful gift to the King of Kings. But you have knees. Maybe you didn't make some fresh commitments this morning. Maybe you need to join the church or maybe you need to commit to your husband or wife or commit to being a parent who's engaged or commit afresh to your relationship with the Son of God. But if you want blessings to flow into your life, you can't expect a perfect gift until you have somebody's heart. That means a committed relationship.
While heads are bowed, I'm going to ask you very quietly to stand to your feet. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, Pastor Aaron's right here on the front row. He's right here. And if you need to know Christ as your Savior, you come and take his hand. It'll take him 30 seconds to tell you how to receive Christ as your Savior this morning. And he'd be thrilled to do it. Miss Leah's right here. Come and take her hand. 30 seconds. She'll show you what to do. Father, we bow before you this morning, our heads and our hearts. Thank you that I stand here this morning in the company of wise men and women. Lord, a house full of wise men and women. Many already on their knees this morning before you. Lord, I don't know their hearts, but God, treasure have we little. But knees we have. And hearts we have. And grateful, grateful minds we have this morning. So Lord, whatever we have this morning to give, we're going to offer it up to you in these moments. The worship that you deserve. God, forgive us for singing fall on your knees when we haven't in a long time. And challenge us, Lord, about our posture and about our giving and about our attitude before the Son of God. Father, thank you for giving to us this morning the perfect gift. Jesus Christ was the perfect gift for us. God, you could have never ever in a million years done any better than you did for us. Lord, what a personal, meaningful, sacrificial gift you've given to us. God, thank you for your generosity. We know it's all because of your love and because of your grace that you give to us in such a way. Father, this morning, let us give ourselves back to you in such a meaningful, humble, and sacrificial way. God bless us as we worship before you right now. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.